Let me encourage you to take your Bibles and join us in the book of Judges, chapter 10. Judges, chapter 10. We'll begin reading in a minute, verse 6. Judges 10, verse 6. I've told you before that the Bible is really one story. It is the story of the love of God for a rebellious people and the solution of God for our rebellion. That is the story of the Bible. So the Bible is not primarily about these characters that we meet, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Solomon, etc., Rather, the Bible is about God, and we see God at work in these people, like we see God at work in us. My name is not any of those names, neither is yours, unless, of course, it is, but God is at work, and He is at work in our lives, flawed as they are, challenging as they are, failing as they are. God is nonetheless at work. And what we see in the Bible is that God has a plan for his seed. From Genesis chapter 3, he announces that the seed of the woman shall do battle against the descendant of the serpent or the seed of the serpent. And that narrative is the narrative that holds the Bible together. This narrative of war is all over the Bible. It's evil against good. It's good against evil. We see this narrative played out in our own lives. We're looking for good, and we find evil. We're looking for, hoping for better, and we find disappointment, etc. We find this same narrative again and again. It turns out we live in a difficult place. We contribute to the difficulty of this place by our own sinfulness and selfishness. Uh, if you don't recognize you're selfish, then you just, I don't know, you're lying. Uh, you're selfish. You're just selfish. Just let somebody cut in front of you getting a donut. I mean, game on. You're selfish. So uh, that's, that's our problem. We just, we just consume with ourselves. We think we're the center of everything. We want to talk about ourselves incessantly. We want to compare what we do to what you do. And somehow what you do is not nearly as quality as what I do. We always want to one-up people all the time, just constantly, constantly. Well, you know, if you were me, you'd be smarter. If you were me, you'd be better looking. If you were me, you'd be richer. If you'd be me, you'd be happier. If you were me, if you were me. Well, friend, we're not you. To which some might say, glory to God. Nonetheless, here we are today reading the Bible, and we're reading in what amounts to being one of the hardest books in the Bible to find God for most people. Now, it's not because God's hard to find in the book of Judges. He's on every page. But people, if you will, stay at treetop level when they read the Bible and they don't get down and, and deal with what's really going on. Well, today we're going to read about a, a fellow by the name of Jephthah. Jephthah. Now, unless you think you, you've never heard of him, well, if you've read the book of Hebrews, and you have because I've preached through the entire book of Hebrews twice since I've been your pastor. And if you keep hanging around, I'm going to do it a third time because some of you are still not getting it. So I'm going to keep going. But you'll note that in the book of Hebrews, uh, in the roll call of faith, Jephthah, along with Gideon, Barak, Samson, is listed as one of the righteous men. 
They said, well, Jephthah's story is pretty shady. <laughs> That's the point. Name me one person God has used that's not a little bit shady. He's used me, shady. He's used you, shady. And you say, well, I'm not as shady as Greg. I'm not your standard, friend. You're not my standard. You spend all your time comparing yourself to other people. You lose. I can find a pretty boy who's prettier than you. I can find a smarter guy, smarter than you. Stop comparison. It's just not any value whatsoever. Well, Jephthah, I promise you, when you compare yourself to Jephthah, you're going to come out ahead. None of us have ever lived the life of this guy. You'll remember as we started in the book of Judges, we told you that there are six major judges, and those are the six that we're focusing on. Jephthah's the fifth. The fourth was Gideon. The sixth is Samson. Samson's up on the schedule for next week, but I'm not preaching Samson on Mother's Day. <laughs> By the way, for those of you not paying attention, next Sunday is Mother's Day. You've got a week to deal with it. All right, but I'm not preaching Samson on Mother's Day, not because it's wrong, but, you know, Samson just has this real problem with women. It's really hard to, to handle that on Mother's Day. So I'm going to do it the week after, which is, by the way, the week we recognize our graduating high school seniors. I'm doing Samson that day. Go figure. But he's the fifth of the six major judges. Right before Jephthah, the story we read here in a minute, uh, he's, we're introduced to a couple of minor judges. We know their names. We know how long they were judged. And that's it. They're minor. We don't know anything about them. There's no sermon there. Uh, right after Jephthah, we're going to meet two more minor judges. We don't know anything about them either, except their name and how long they served. They are minor judges. There's no sermon there. But there is a great sermon as to the life of Jephthah. In fact, this sermon could last for days, but it won't, I promise you. In fact, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you there's only one point in this sermon, not because there's only one point in Jephthah's life, but there's only one point in this sermon because I think it's going to take our entire time to make this one point. You won't immediately recognize it, but I hope you, once you recognize it, you will never be the same. That's my hope. So chapter 10, verse 6. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. So... The anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites. Now, stop here a moment. Jephthah is going to be the solution to the problem with the Ammonites. For those of you who know the story of Samson, who we'll look at in two weeks, he is the solution for the problem with the Philistines. So, got problems with these two countries, if you will, one on either side of Israel, and he's going to raise up two judges to fix it. So, verse 8, And they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For 18 years they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. 
And the Ammonites, do you see that the Ammonites are not the Amorites? Unless you're really paying attention, you just lost me. The Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah and against Benjamin, against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and we have served the Baals. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, Did I not save you from the Egyptians, from the Amorites, from the Ammonites, and from the Philistines, the Sidonians also, and the Amalekites, and the Minoanites, oppressed you, and you cried out to me, and I saved you out of their hand. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you've chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. And the people of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them, and they served the Lord And he became impatient over the misery of Israel. If you want to underline a statement in Jephthah's story, there it is. God became impatient with the misery of Israel. Elsewhere in the Bible, the phrase simply says, God relented. God relented. Do you want a God who relents? Yes, brother, you do. So God became impatient, verse, 11, verse 17. Then the Ammonites were called to arms, and they encamped in Gilead. And the people of Israel came together, and they encamped at Mizpah. And the people, the leaders of Gilead, said to one another, Who is the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Now I'm going to stop here. I'm going to read in a minute the opening paragraphs of chapter 11, but I need to help you f- figure out what's going on. You remember that when Israel came out of Egypt, they had been to Mount Sinai, got the Ten Commandments. They had come to Kadesh Barnea, the southern city in Canaan. They'd sent the spies into the land. The spies came back, and ten of the spies says, we shouldn't go. Two of the spies, Joshua and Caleb, said, we should go. God will take care of this. They voted with the majority. God judged them, and they wandered in the wilderness, the area south of what today is the country of Jordan, what we'd call the the nation of Saudi Arabia and the desert sands of southern Jordan. They wandered and they wandered and they wandered and they wandered for 40 years. And God allowed those who voted with the majority against going into the promised land, he allowed them to die. They died, they were buried in the wilderness. And their children are actually the people that went into the promised land with Joshua. So Joshua leads them into the promised land. They go to Jericho, blow trumpets, the walls come down, they keep, come in and they occupy the land and so forth. That's the historical narrative. Well, you remember as they're moving north out of the desert sands of Jordan, they come to specific regions that are strange to us. And if you're, if you're not into Bible geography, they're just mentioned here and they don't, it doesn't mean anything to us. So I'm going to try to help you with this. Think, think Israel and then across the Jordan River, Today is the nation of Jordan. The capital of Jordan is Amman. The the name Amman comes from the leader of the Ammonite peoples. His name was Ramoth Amman. Say, well, why did he go by two names? Well, before that was a thing in Texas, that was a thing in 
Ammon. So Raboth Ammon, or Ammon, was the leader of the Ammonites. And they're located on the headwaters of the little river there. That it, It's not much of a river coming out of Jordan and flows into the Jordan and uh, into, eventually into the Dead Sea. So there's a big city there today. You go to Ammon, Jordan, it's an enormous city. Uh, and we, we have a fraternal relationship, the United States does, with Jordan and so forth. Uh, but for the most part, it's desert. And that, that said, that's, that's what's going on there. So the people of Israel coming up out of Saudi Arabia, they're coming up out of the desert, the wilderness wanderings. Joshua's leading them. And they, they come, first of all, to a, a little kingdom, the, the, the sons, if you will, of Lot. And the sons uh, of Lot are, are forming these little sections of land. The first they come to is Edom. Edom is not affiliated with Lot, but nonetheless, there's a section of Edom. God says, you're not going to pick a fight with them. Just ask them if you can pass through their land. Joshua asks. They say, no. They go around. The next town, next section they come to is Moab. Moab is famous because that's where Ruth is from. Naomi and Ruth, Boaz, that whole story. Moab. Moab is a cross. We're still in the country of Jordan, right? Moab. He said, you're not going to fight them. These are my people, just different, different uh, ancestry. Yeah, you're not going to fight them. Ask them if you can pass. They said no, so they went around them. How, how long does it take to go around a country in the desert? I don't know. If it takes more than an hour, I'm against it, right? I mean, it's, it's hot. It's dry. It's whatever. They, they didn't... They, they, it was inconvenient, but they did it. So they didn't bother Edom, and Edom didn't bother them. They didn't bother Moab, and Moab didn't bother them. The next section they came to is, is the land of the Amorites. And the Amorites were a bunch of... Uh, argumentative folks. They sent word, uh, Joshua did, to the Amorite king. And they said, uh, we'd like to come through your land. And he didn't send word back, he sent an army. So he, he picked a fight, the Amorite king. So they, you, you want to fight? We're going to fight. So they fought. Joshua basically wiped the floor with the Amorites, and God gave them the country of the Amorites. So that's the country, the, the nation right across the Jordan River in today what is modern-day Jordan. Beyond that, keeping going, like you're going over to Iran, keep going, there's a section called Ammon. So the Amorites, and then there are the Ammonites. Well, the Ammonites are way over there, way, way, way over there. And this whole section here is, is referenced again and again in the Bible as Gilead. As you, as you move north from there, it becomes more hilly, more mountainous, more green, more water, etc. And it's not desert as much. And so there, there's farmland and there's, there's livestock. And, and Gilead is a, is a place of respite. It's cooler. It, it, it's got green instead of brown. And, and it's just a, it's the place to go on vacation, Gilead. Well, this whole section's called Gilead. And so all of that's happening. And Jephthah is... We're going to meet him in the next chapter here in a minute. It's from Gilead, this section. But Gilead, Jephthah's got a problem. We're going to see his problem in a minute. But what's going on is the Ammonites are now oppressing Israel. And the reason that they're oppressing Israel is because Israel is under the judgment of God. And the reason Israel is experiencing that is because they have devoted themselves to following pagan gods. They have left the one true God, their God, who gave them this land, gave them houses they did not build, they drink from wells they did not dig, they inherited livestock that they did not accumulate, and on and on. 
God gave them all of these things, and they, they jettisoned their relationship with God. They just become enamored with the world. They decided that the Canaanite people were attractive, so they marry their women. They decided that the Canaanite people were rich, and so they followed their gods because their gods made them rich, et cetera, et cetera. Instead of, instead of eliminating all of these threats to their faith, they embraced all of these things, and they polluted their faith, and they leave God. And you see that early in this section, verse 6, verse 7. You're, you're, you're following all these other gods, and he mentions them by name, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, the gods of the Philistines, etc. Why are you following all these gods? And in the midst of doing that, now that your life is tough, because I brought tough on you, and you cry out to me, you didn't need me, now you do. I'll tell you what, just go pursue those other gods and get their help. So that's what's going on here. God's bringing judgment upon his people for their unfaithfulness to bring them ultimately back to him. God does that in my life. God does that in your life. He's bringing discipline on his children. You do that, by the way, with your earthly children. You discipline your children. And if you don't, the Bible says you don't love them. You, you discipline those whom you love. You drive them back to you. You drive them back to holiness and righteousness and faithfulness. Well, that's what God's doing. The only difference is, of course, God has every, every piece of arsenal equipment that he could possibly have God has all that in order to deal with me and you, bring him, us back to him. God can sweep our legs out from under us any old day he wants to. And many of us have life stories that are full of those. Having said that, that's what's going on here. These people of God have rejected God, and God is bringing them back to him. In the midst of that, they cry out, and they're looking for a leader. Well, now in chapter 11, they find a leader. Let's read his story. Now, Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. I would just challenge you for a minute. There was a day when preachers, and I suppose early in my life I was one of those preachers, made much of the fact that God can't use you unless you are righteous unless your house is in order and of course that's true except when it's not you want to study the Bible you just should analyze the history of some of the great people that God used 
And you'll find that they came from very difficult circumstances. Perhaps none any more difficult than Jephthah. He is the son of a prostitute. And he's about to be completely banished by his family. And yet, he is lauded in the New Testament for his faith. Some of you have a box for explaining the Bible, and Jephthah doesn't fit in your box, which means the problem is not with Jephthah. The problem is with you and your box. So, verse 2, chapter 11, Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out, and they said, you're not getting any money. Well, that's not what it says, but that's what it means. You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you're the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of, what would you call that place? Tob? Tob? I mean, if Job is Job, this is Tob. Tob, Tob. And worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. Now, again, geography matters here. Where in the world is Tob? Well, Tob is on the other side of Ammon. Like, even further away from the Jordan River. Uh, Tob is on the fringes of the frontier. And who is this guy? This is Quantrell. Jephthah's Quantrell's Raiders. He's in Kansas and Missouri, and he's got a band of folks, and he's going around doing stuff. Notice what it says. Verse 3, Jephthah fled from his brothers, lived in Tob, and worthless fellows collected around him. Didn't your mama tell you that you will be known by your friends? What do we know then about Jephthah? If worthless fellows are collecting around Jephthah, you're right. Jephthah is not a pristine human being. He is the son of a prostitute. That's not his problem. His problem is that his earthly brothers, his earthly family rejected him and banished him to the frontier life, and all he could do over there was rob and pillage. So he is in Tob, which is in the middle of nowhere. And if it's not the middle of nowhere, you can see it from there. And he's running, he's running a band of raiders out of Tob. This is a hole in the wall. Nowheresville. But he gets a reputation because he's a fighting man. He's a man who gets things done. So remember the question we're trying to answer. The last verse, verse uh, chapter 10 is, who is the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? The Ammonites? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. <laughs> so verse 4, after a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel. And when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said to Jephthah, come and be our leader that we may fight against the Ammonites. We're looking for a bad dude. And you're the guy. So Jephthah said to the elders, did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, that is why we have turned to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. 
Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, if you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites and the Lord gives them over to me. By the way, isn't that interesting? If you bring me home and Yahweh, that's, that's the covenant name for God, the Lord. If Yahweh, God, gives them to me. This Jephthah guy who lives in Tob and is running this kind of Robin Hood without the virtue operation, a band of raiders in Tob knows God. Wow. Most people would have evaluated Jephthah and said, he doesn't know God. He's running this band of outlaws. He doesn't know God at all. But in fact, he does. He said, if the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, the Lord will be witness between us if we do not do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead and the people made him head and leader over them. And Jephthah spoke all the words before the Lord at Mizpah. He made a vow with God, Jephthah did. And they entered into an agreement. So now we have the, the people of God, the people who had banished him at one time, have now embraced this vagabond son of a prostitute, brought him back, and he's now going to lead them against the Ammonites. Now I'm going to stop here. Not because the rest of it's not good, but because the rest of it's just got more time than we've got. I, uh, I want to show you one point in this, this sermon, or this, if you will, this section, and you need to keep your Bibles open because once you see this, I'm convinced you'll never, you'll never not see it again. <laughs> I must tell you that uh, I am in debt to a Presbyterian pastor by the name of Dale Ralph Davis who wrote a commentary on the book of Judges. Dr. Davis used to teach at Reformed Seminary and then pastored in Hattiesburg, now pastors uh, out of state. He's written a wonderful commentary uh, I, I didn't see this until Dr. Davis showed it to me in a commentary. And uh, to his everlasting credit, he recognized that he's not the first one that actually noted this. He noted that Matthew Henry, many of you know the name Matthew Henry, first wrote this point in 1708. Now, there are probably many, many thousands, maybe tens of thousands of Bible scholars who've seen it beforehand, but before the printing press... They didn't write stuff down and copy it over and over and over and over again. So a lot of our Bible scholar stuff is really only 500 years old, and that's because of printing, not because people were not smart a thousand years ago or walking with God. But I want you to note that what's happening here is at the end of chapter 10 and the beginning of chapter 11 fit together like this. I've said this many times, nothing is wasted in the Bible. And this is another example of that. What we find here is an acting parable. Let me give you an illustration of this elsewhere in the Bible. Many of you know the story of Hosea. Hosea is a prophet seven centuries before Christ, and he is commanded by God to marry a woman who, is, who has a questionable reputation. Some say she's a prostitute, Others say she's just a, a woman who becomes a prostitute or maybe even has been a prostitute but is no longer a prostitute. The reality is the Bible doesn't say emphatically. The point is she has a very questionable reputation and she 
has involvement with other men. Her name is Gomer. So Hosea marries a woman named Gomer. Why does Hosea marry that woman? And the answer is, in the Bible, the book of Hosea, he is commanded to. Why is that? Because Hosea and Gomer, the love story between this righteous man, Hosea, and this unfaithful woman named Gomer, is an acting parable. What God is doing is showing through Hosea's life the relationship between God and his people, Israel. Now, God is played in this drama in Hosea by the pure-hearted man, Hosea, the faithful man. And Gomer plays the part of the unfaithful wife, the adulteress, Israel. So we're familiar with this kind of circumstance. If you follow at all the book of Hosea, you know that's the story. It's a love story between a man and an unfaithful woman. And God uses that and says, how have I loved you? And how have you loved me? And somehow in the midst of that, the unrelenting following love of Hosea turns the affections of his unfaithful wife back to him. And this is a parable of God's pursuing his people, his wife, his bride, you and me. God is pursuing me today. Thanks be to God. In this is love. Not that I loved God, but that he loved me. He set his affection upon me. He looked at me and found me, not me finding him. I wasn't just sitting there daydreaming one day and saying, oh, I think I'll just try God. Instead, the, the miracle of the Bible is that God loved me enough to open my eyes and my heart to be tender to the glory of God, to the goodness of God. God used all kinds of people in that process and local churches, the church that I grew up in, uh, I, I owe an enormous debt, an incalculable debt to people who have invested in me, just like you. People have invested in you. They taught you and taught you and taught you and loved you and loved you, cared for you and cared for you and, and, and did it again and again and again and again and again. And why? Because they want you to know that God is unrelenting in his pursuit of you. So here you have this story of Israel. And it sounds like the same story. And in fact, it is. We've seen it five major times in the book of Judges. God has told them he loves them, but they pursue other gods. And you'll see this. Let me just show you this. Verse 6, you'll note the people of God reject God. Now I want you to compare that to Jephthah's story. The people of Jephthah reject Jephthah. So what does that matter? Well, you'll note in verse 7, chapter 10, that the rejection of God turns out bad for Israel. Verse 7 says, The anger of the Lord was kindled against them. He sold them into the hands of the Philistines in the hand of the Ammonites. What happens in Jephthah's story? Well, chapter 11, verse 4, life goes bad for them, and the Ammonites come against them. They sold Jephthah away. They, they rejected him, pushed him away, and that doesn't end well. Then you'll notice in verse 10, chapter 10, a third thing happens. They cry out, or what to use New Testament language, we would say they repented. 
The people of Israel cried out to the Lord, we've sinned against you, we've forsaken our God, and we've served the Baals. What happens in Jephthah's life? Chapter 11, verse 5, they cry out to Jephthah. They said, oh, Jephthah, come home, help us. And you'll notice in verse 11, chapter 10, God objects. The Lord said to the people of Israel, did I not save you from, and he lists these enemies, Egyptians, Amorites, Ammonites, Philistines, Sidonians, Amalekites, Manoites. They oppressed you, cried out to me, and I saved you. Yet you have forsaken me and served ever gods. Therefore, I will not save you anymore. I'm done with you dudes. I'm done. What is Jephthah's response? Look at chapter 11, verse 7. Jephthah said to the elders, Did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you're in distress? Turns out Jephthah's story is an exact copy. It's an acting parable of what's happening in Israel. It's not over yet. Look at chapter 10, verse 15. They appealed to God. The people of Israel said to the Lord, We've sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please, please, please help me. So they put away the foreign gods from among them, and they served the Lord. They repented. They appealed to God a second time. Come, come, we're serious. We're going to show we're serious by, by, by putting out these foreign gods. What had happened in Jephthah's life? Look at verse 8, chapter 11. The elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, That is why we've turned to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. We're going to make you our man, our guy. You're going to be our leader. We, we're, we, we're going to repent of what we did. We kicked you out. We're bringing you home. And we're not only just letting you, you know, buy a, a thousand square foot little house on the corner of, uh, you know, Avenue A. We're going to put you in the king's house, the, the ruler's house, the leader's house. We're going to make you a big deal, bring you home, make you important. And you'll note how it ends, chapter 10 the last phrase, uh, verse 16, rather, he became impatient, God did, over the misery of Israel. In other words, God agreed with them, and he relented. What happens with Jephthah? Verse 9, chapter 11, he said, if you bring me home to fight against the Ammonites, and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head and the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, the Lord will be witness between us if we don't do it. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and leader over them. What, what, what is the point of all this? Well, I would just simply say it this way, summarizing. God intends that his people should look to be rescued by the very one they rejected. God intends for his people to be rescued by the very one they rejected. You say, well, that seems to be a familiar narrative in the Bible. And you'd be right. In the ancient story, the people of God reject God, and God turns them over, and they cry out to God, and God sends a deliverer. And the deliverer in this case is the son of the prostitute that they kicked to the curb. In fact, kicked, 
all the way to the edge of civilization years before. And now in their time of need, they cry out to the one they've rejected. You say, well, I've heard that story before. And you'd be right. Join me in the New Testament, Acts chapter 2. Quickly, Acts chapter 2. Verse 22. Acts 2 is the day of Pentecost. This is the coming of the Holy Spirit. Peter is preaching, filled with the Holy Spirit. And he begins to give the men of Israel a history lesson. I can't belabor all of this in the interest of time, but I'll try to be very brief here. Look at verse 22, Acts 2. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders, signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified. You kicked him to the edge. You, you got rid of him. You banished him. You crucified him. You killed him by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up. God brought him back. God kept him alive. God made him alive again, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, quoting David now, no less authority than David. That's his point. You guys think David's the smart guy. Well, he is smart. Look at this. This is Psalm 16. I saw the Lord always before me. He's at my right hand, and I may not be shaken. My heart was glad. My tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or to Tob. Or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. In other words, the living Lord mentioned in Psalm 16 ain't David. David's dead. And the living Lord in Psalm 16 is alive. So who is David talking about? Verse 30, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, 2 Samuel 7, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he would not abandon him to Hades, nor did his flesh cease corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, again, quoting Psalm 110, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Listen, friends, Jephthah is an acting parable. Jephthah is the judge that God brought back from death. Rejection, banishment. Jephthah is an acting parable. Do you see it? Do you understand this is what God is doing in your life today? That no matter what has happened, the only hope you have or I have or any of us ever will have is that God has not forgotten us. We may be out on the proverbial edge of civilization, some place named Tob. But God has not forgotten us. He knew Jephthah by name. He cared about Jephthah. 
He intended to use Jephthah to do something miraculous, spectacular. I don't, have no, I don't have any idea as to what God intends for my life or your life in the grand sum of things. But I know this, that this is what God does. He sends his son and the very people that killed him, he flipped it on him and he said, you will bow to him, the one you killed. You will bow to the one you rejected. You think of Joseph. Joseph said, I had a dream. We all had sheaves in the field. My sheave was standing. All you brothers were bowing. They took matters in their own hands and we'll put an end to that. We'll sell him into slavery. Turns out God's in charge of even that. He's in charge of places like Egypt and Tob and Clinton, Mississippi. He's in charge of you and your life and your circumstance. And what you need today is not necessarily a change of circumstance, though that would be nice. But ultimately what you need is to bow before the one who is your true rescuer. God has rescued me. Not from difficulty like Jephthah. God has rescued you. Some of you have had difficulty similar to Jephthah, only different. But that's not the point. The point is God doesn't forget his people. And God is at work protecting the seed of the woman in this battle against the seed of the serpent. And today the Ammonites are the enemy. Next time the Philistines are going to be the enemy. And in your life, they're not Ammonites or Philistines, either one. But they are nonetheless threats. God is in the business of securing his people and securing his seed and keeping his promise to the people. This is the church of the living God. We are the called out ones to be the people of God. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against us. Not because of us, but because the one who was dead and now is alive, who has conquered death for us so that we might have eternal life. One day the living Lord seated at the right hand of the Father, I will see with my very eyes. And I will speak with my very tongue. Face to face. Thank you. Thank you for rescuing me. For saving me. And giving me grace. Did Israel need grace in Judges 10? You bet. The Bible says that God relented. Did Jephthah need grace out in the middle of nowhere? Yes. God rescued Jephthah and used him as one of the great leaders of Israel. Was Jephthah a flawed man? Yes. Am I a flawed man? Yes. You a flawed person? Yes. The only one who's not flawed is the one before whom all of us will bow. Jesus. If you do not know Jesus today, if you've not pledged your love and life to Jesus, then I beg of you, come out of the darkness, come away from the wilderness, come out from the edge of nowhere, and come home. And let God use you for his glory. You'll be a servant the great God of heaven and earth. There's only one who can save us from our sins. There's only one who can save us from our idolatry of the Baals and the Ashtaroth and all the rest 
of the threats against our faithfulness to God. There's only one who can save us from our sin. And that's the Lord Jesus. Know him today. Let's pray together. Father, I do thank you for your tender mercies. We thank you, Father, for this great story of Jephthah and his life. Pray, Father, for your power to be manifest in our lives. First, the power to see the beauty of Christ. And having seen him, Father, to realize that you are using our lives as an instrument in the lives of others. Help us to be heralds of this good news. Help us to be soul winners. Help us to be those who tell and tell and tell and tell that the only antidote for our unfaithfulness is the faithfulness of Christ. Lord, we lean on Christ today. And we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.